Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome today a great friend, Marna Borgstrom, CEO of Yale New Haven Health, which she's led since 2005. Marna earned her undergraduate degree at Stanford and an MPH from Yale. She's chaired numerous national boards and is a past chair of the Vizient Board of Directors. I've known her for most of the last 25 years, and I'm fortunate to have her as a very dear friend. Marna, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. I'm delighted to be with you. I thought we would maybe start out with a kind of a broad question, um, a two-parter. What do you think we get particularly right in American medicine? And conversely, where do you think we fall down the most? And what might you change to make it better? So, you know, I think the thing that we do really well is we have a great sick care system. Um, it's not always completely consistent, but I think that most people would agree that if somebody they cared about was really ill, uh, any place they would want to bring them um, to the United States and to some of our great academic medical centers and systems uh, for care. And, you know, I've seen just amazing things in my 42 years in this field done for people who thought that they uh, had no hope. And so I think that we patch people up and, and get them back out uh, pretty darn well. But, you know, I don't think that that is all we should be doing. And, um, you know, I think where we fall short is that we're not a healthcare system, we're a sick care system. So let me follow up on that a little bit. Um, if if we are kind of at leading edge in terms of sophisticated high end care, uh, do you think that uh, you think that that there's a, an imbalance? Do you think we're leaning too much toward complicated care and away from some of the simpler things? You know, I would go back to um, one of the my favorite um, books uh, of all time in healthcare was written by a woman who used to be a professor of public health and then global health at Yale University. Her name was Betsy Bradley, and with a colleague, she wrote a book probably, you know, 15 years ago now called The Paradox of America's Healthcare. And you may have read this, but, you know, their central thesis in, in the book um, is that uh, we actually, if you combine social infrastructure spending and healthcare spending per capita, don't really spend more than other developed countries. But other developed countries have invested and are investing a lot more in social infrastructure. And since so many of the illnesses we treat are a function um, of socioeconomic issues, uh, they arguably are treating fewer catastrophic healthcare issues because they've invested on the front end to fireproof rather than to firefight. And I think in this country, we invest less consistently in social infrastructure, and then we're good firefighters as healthcare providers, but we haven't done a lot of fireproofing. Well, where would you invest if we were trying to tackle some of the manifestations of the social determinants of health? Curing poverty and, and um, poor education and language barriers, the core drivers of the challenged social determinants of health, 
probably a bigger bite than the healthcare system is equipped to take on. How do you see uh, Yale's opportunity to deal with the manifestations of those social determinants of health? If you can't cure hunger and poverty, um, what can we do uh, to try and at least head off the manifestations? So I agree with, you know, the underlying um, basis of your question that says we can't be all things to all people. But if, you know, the if the Betsy Bradley argument holds water, um, you know, how do we play a role in changing some of those investments? And I think that healthcare organizations in most communities have a unique role to be able to be both investors and conveners um, of other uh, businesses, uh, government uh, organizations to come together. And rather than having many different uh, investments in different favorite organizations that don't have a proportional impact, come together and determine, you know, what some of the real needs, and it's going to vary community by community are. So as an example, in the Yellow Haven Health System, besides um, because in the Northeast and in Connecticut, there are no city county hospitals. So our hospitals are safety net hospitals and the 1,550 bed academic medical center is obviously a tertiary and quaternary care organization as well. And then everything uh, in between. And, you know, most people would say in Connecticut, you know, Connecticut's such a wealthy state, who cares? But actually, Bridgeport and New Haven are uh, two of 50 poorest mid-sized cities in the United States. And we have the safety net responsibility in those communities. So we can't, you know, we're already being underpaid by the state government substantially for Medicaid and by the federal government uh, on average for Medicare on the dollar of cost. So there isn't a lot left to invest. But what we've made the decision to do is uh, to try and improve access to and joint venture with federally qualified health centers in our communities to try and create integrated Uh, primary ambulatory and access to specialty care for medically indigent patients. We've invested in education in um, New Haven with Yale University. We invested in a promise program, which basically says for any student in any of the public schools uh, who goes through high school and maintains a B average, has low absenteeism, uh, has parental support or family support and other things, they will be guaranteed payment for a four-year uh, college experience with preference given to state uh, colleges and universities. And over a 10-year period of time, that has dramatically increased the graduation uh, rate. And, you know, part of this is also then investing in programs that can get people jobs. So that doesn't just get them an education, but it gives them skills. And then what we're trying to do is attract them back to the community. So, you know, tackle education, tackle health care. We've done some work uh, on housing. We've coordinated with Habitat for Humanity in a couple of our communities, taken old blighted properties that we've purchased and then flipped them to Habitat. You know, so I think like so many things in healthcare, 
uh, Tom, it's a little of this and a little of that, but none of it do we do on our own. Uh, we do it with Habitat. We do it with Yale University in Bridgeport. We do it with the University of Bridgeport. You do it with other sort of corporate uh, community partners to try and invest in the things that are going to improve social infrastructure. You know, Marta, I was really interested uh, in your description of the role that that the health system can play as a convener. It feels like you're providing infrastructure or, or connective tissue to a, a fabric of organizations that suffer from a lack of that uh, that infrastructure. Is that a fair observation? You know, I'm not sure how you're defining infrastructure or how I would define infrastructure, but we bring um, organizations together. And I think besides our money and whatever we've invested in the programs, the big thing that we bring are organizational skills and people in our organizations who can drive some of these initiatives and bring people together and have a plan for an outcome. Because, you know, I think a lot of times you get a bunch of well-intentioned people together, but sustaining something and actually getting to a clear desired outcome is not always where we end up. And so we have a lot of things that were born of good ideas that die on the vine because they aren't nurtured. Yep, that's 100%. We're completely aligned in the way we're thinking about uh, about the concept. Let me shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things that you always read when a health system forms or when they expand, if you read through the press clippings, somewhere buried in the press clippings is always this trite phrase, the right care in the right place at the right time. If three identical patients, I always say this, if, if three identical patients were to walk into a single health system, but entered through three different doors. And if those three folks got three different care plans, as a non-physician, I don't know which one of those is right, but I know two of them are wrong. Why do you think systems struggle so much to eliminate what we would call avoidable variation? So it's an interesting question, and I wish that I were smart enough to give you a really good answer um, to that. Uh, you know, I could start by saying, are there really any three identical cases, patients, et cetera? Because it's very hard, but we clearly know that there are cohorts uh, of patients with very similar problems. And I think historically, it's because we were always looking at things retrospectively. And so we would uh, go in and do case evaluations or uh, do cohort evaluations and identify the variations. Um, but it was really hard to hardwire a standard approach to providing care. And one of the things I'm particularly proud, this is not an, uh, an ad for the Yelna Haven Health System uh, of what we've done over the last five or six years now, is at any point in time, we have about 40 rapid cycle performance improvement initiatives going on. And these are almost completely around a particular um, population or a particular uh, disease state. Um, they are populated almost exclusively by clinicians, largely physicians from across the health system. So community hospital physicians, as well as academic 
physicians. There are other uh, extended, you know, caregiver extenders uh, in this. And then we have a couple of really smart people who do a lot of the project work. And we've taken them on because people have suggested that there's an opportunity for improvement. But we never take them on just because we think they're going to save us money. In some cases, they have. In some cases, they haven't. Um, But when we have gotten clinicians together, they have looked at the data. They have looked at variation. I can't think of a case that I have personally been exposed to where the clinicians didn't come to a pretty good consensus about how that care should be provided, what order sets make sense, et cetera, et cetera. And now what we have the opportunity to do, because every provider throughout the system is on the same electronic health record, is to put these into EPIC so that it doesn't mean that you can't override it as a clinician, but so that the prompts that come up follow the pathways that we have. So I'm very optimistic about the opportunity to do that. The problem, as we both know, is that there are literally hundreds of thousands of these and variations of these that need to be accounted for. So what do you do? You start with the 80-20 rule. But, you know, I think that it has helped us to move toward what we think is going to be really important, which is a signature of care. I once said to an oncology uh, lead who we were hiring, how will we know that we have achieved outstanding on care of cancer patients? And instead of giving, you know, the typical metrics that you would usually get uh, from a clinician and then the next person would give you something else and the next person would give you something else, this physician said, I will know that we have achieved that premier level of care when anybody that I care about or that somebody I know cares about comes into our system for care and I don't have to pick up the phone and do a workaround. You know, when you know that the systems are going to work well for each patient. And I think that, you know, we're making progress there, but, you know, it's like boiling the ocean. There's a lot there to work on. Yeah, I think you put your finger on something, you know, really um, telling about health systems in in general, not anyone in in particular. But, you know, it's very often that I get uh, a phone call from someone and they might be in one part of the country or another and a family member, a relative, a friend is is uh, suffering from something serious. And because I'm I'm fortunate enough to have friendships with folks like you, I, I can pick up the phone and call. And, you know, what we always end up doing is we always end up um, kind of working around the system and saying, how do we get this person into exactly the right situation? And to your point, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just send them at the system and know that it was going to work the same way every time? Right. You know, you're familiar with our research and and in our most recent research, we've been focusing on uh, the prevalence of low volume surgical programs particularly those that are operating below published proficiency thresholds. And it's particularly troubling to see that 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 circumstance virtually always happens with a high volume alternative available in the very same health system. During the COVID surge early in the spring, as I was talking to CEOs, and you'll recall that you and I chatted uh, earlier in the year, and, uh, you know, CEO after CEO, as I was talking with folks around the country, 
talked about, they used a term that I liked, purposeful restart. And the thought was, when we shut everything down in the spring and then, and then started to reopen, not everything that was shut down was going to come back exactly where it had been. As we come out of the COVID crisis on the other side, do you think we missed an opportunity for that purposeful restart? I'm not sure that we have. Um, I, I still think that th- there are, I, I can just speak for our organization and some of my colleagues with whom I've had conversation. Uh, I think that we're all looking to say, um, first of all, we're all sick of the term, the new normal, by the way. I hate it when people use that. But, you know, in general, I think we're also saying we don't want to go back. There are a lot of things um, that were not great that we were doing before. And so use this as an opportunity. And the issue that you describe of inadequate volumes to assure proficiency, but we do it anyway. Why have we done it? In general, it's for a couple of reasons, in my humble opinion. One is um, local uh, clinicians drive it, you know, and I need to be able to do X, Y, and Z, or I'm going to pick up my, um, my toys and go to somebody else. As likely or more likely is that in multi-provider communities, even though um, and a health system may say, look, we should put all aortic uh, interventional uh, cases at X, Y, and Z organization, um, if in that a community there is a competitor who is offering it, and knowing that people don't always like to move around, what you'll find is that physicians will refer for convenience or for local relationships as much uh, as for objective understanding of proficiency. I think that's a big challenge. I'll tell you the reverse of this, and one of the things that we are moving toward is becoming what we're calling an academically-based health system. Because you may not have all of the volume in an organization that you want to do. Pick Greenwich Hospital, which is um, about 45 miles from the academic medical center, but on a busy day on Interstate 95, you know, can be a 90 plus minute drive. You'd like to be able to do more there. You don't have all of the volume to establish um, tertiary care, neurosurgery, or you know certain cardiac diseases, or even certain oncologic cases. But if you make the physicians part of an integrated either ownership or clinically integrated network, and you can move the physicians around within limits, we have avoided saying that so-and-so is going to be in one community half day a week or something like that. That doesn't work. But if you have, particularly in these high-end areas, an academic physician who's going to spend three or three and a half days a week in Greenwich doing clinical care and then may have a full academic day back in New Haven and are also doing some of their uh, tertiary and quaternary cases there. In aggregate, you're getting more volume expertise delivered in these local markets without necessarily having it all come from those markets. You know, we've been talking about microeconomic issues, supply and demand, uh, moving things around within a, within a market. 
I'd like to shift gears a little bit and get your thoughts on a few macroeconomic questions. Would you mind coming back to give us that chance? Nobody's ever wanted to talk to me about economics before, Tom, but if you would like me to, I'd be delighted. (laughs) I, I have an idea. Before we talk about economics and before we wrap up this session, Let's talk about something that you and I uh, have a common interest in. I uh, was fascinated to learn that you love fly fishing. So I have to ask, what's the funniest fishing story that you're comfortable sharing with us? That's a pretty easy one. Every year, we take a great couple of week vacation with my brother and his wife, um, who are also fly fisher people. And um, my sister-in-law is also one of my best friends. And she and I like to fish together because I then don't have somebody always criticizing my casting or whatever else if you've got to, you know. And so she and I were probably about uh, separated by about a quarter of a mile on the creek. In these are in the mountains in Colorado that we're fishing. And, um, you know, I'm casting and I've got a trout on uh, my line. And I see my sister-in-law come walking to me and she said, I got this great fish. And she said, you know, I almost had the hook out of his mouth and he broke away and he's got my my fly in his mouth. And um, so I, you know, am fighting this fish that I'm bringing in, and I finally bring in this fish, and guess what? He has my hook and her hook in it. So that is the <laughs> dumbest trout, brown trout I've ever known. Either, either dumb or angry. <laughs> angry or very hungry. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, that's that beats the it was this lo- it was this long and then sh- and then shortening it up. That, that that's a great story, Marta. Thanks for a great conversation. I I always enjoy being with you, and I look forward to continuing this conversation the next time. Thank you very much, Tom. I hope you'll join us too. We hope you find these conversations thought provoking, and look forward to welcoming you back for a future crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>